And I'm so grateful for all of you who are gathered with us in person, as well as all of those who are gathered with us online. We each have different kinds of circumstances that lead us to be present in body or present in spirit, but it's the presence that matters, and I'm very thankful for it. Let's pray before we start this morning. Uh, God, we come to you uh, carrying many burdens, and Lord, sometimes it feels like we can't voice them because they weigh on us too heavy, but we trust that your spirit is a spirit of freedom, and we ask that we would be released from the weights that we carried that we might feel your presence close to us as we move forward in our days and our weeks. You are good, God, and what you do is good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So last week, we talked about the first portion of Esther's story, set in the capital city of Susa in Persia. Esther has just been crowned as the queen of Persia through her beauty, her winning spirit, her kindness, and her brilliant ambition. She and her uncle Mordecai worked to solidify her position within the palace before she was even chosen to be queen, and their efforts brought security and safety to their family. This week, we're going to hear the rest of the story, with all of its twists and turns. And as we discuss the happenings in this book, we're going to see four distinct threats, two communal and two personal. And we're going to ask, what those threats might have to teach us. So after Esther is crowned, and as the city leaders recover from their hangovers for the month-long party they've just been experiencing for Esther's appointment as queen, Mordecai overhears two members of the guard threatening to kill the king. Well, he tells the plot to Esther, and Esther tells the king, And after an investigation that I'm sure was very thorough, the two conspirators are killed for treason. What a great way to end this time of a banquet with a foiled plot to take down those in power. Esther and Mordecai stand victorious. But of course, we knew that that peace would not last very long. We see in the next chapter that a new threat arises. Haman the Agagite, which means that he's of the Amalekites. And this detail is less about his ethnic heritage, though certainly it might have been, but more about his role to play in the story. For him to be an Amalekite is like an archetype, where he's serving as the villain. So when we see him come on the scene, we expect that soon he will threaten our protagonists. Because you see, the Amalekites and the Hebrew people have been at odds since the start of Israel. So we know why he's here when he comes to power. And he comes to power. He is appointed to the most influential position under the king, by the king's own hand. But we notice that accepting Haman, except when Haman walks through the city gate, the king's gate, Every other official bows and yields in submission to his influence and power, except for Mordecai. Mordecai does not pay him honor in the same way. And the others, the other officials, tell Haman about Mordecai's refusal, probably hoping to win some sort of brownie points, and it enrages Haman, so much so that he plots to kill him. But the text says that Haman thought it was beneath him to just kill Mordecai. That was too far. 
So instead, he plots to kill the entirety of the Jewish people. And he brings this rumor to the king, this rumor that there were people in the land of a particular people group who weren't following the laws of the king. And of course, if we leave that kind of thing unchecked, there's no telling what kind of damage it will do. And the king, of course, is concerned and afraid, and so he agrees to this new law, a day set apart in which any could destroy those people without consequence. So they have made this law, and they set it up and stamp it with the signet of the king. For Esther and Mordecai, their community is now under threat. When Mordecai hears the news, he spends his days in mourning. He's wearing rough sackcloth, ashes covering his head. He wanders the city wailing and weeping in grief for his people. He sends a messenger to Esther in the palace to explain what is happening, to read the edict to her. And they have this back and forth by way of this messenger because Mordecai can't enter the palace when he's in mourning. But he says to Esther that she needs to speak to the king to stop this terrible massacre from happening. And Esther replies that he knows better. Only those who are called before the king can go before the king. Otherwise, she faces dethronement or death because of her absolute audacity to come uncalled for. Mordecai responds to her saying that her presence in the palace of the king is not going to save her. Just because of her royal appointment, she will not avoid the danger of this event. He also says that God is going to preserve God's people one way or another. And he offers her a reminder, maybe it was for this very circumstance that she was appointed to the throne. In order for Esther to ask the king to stop this edict, she has to ignore the rule about approaching the king without being summoned. That alone is cause to be dethroned, which we've already seen in this story with the first queen that we had, refusal to follow the rules. But if the king does not extend the scepter when she comes, then she is instantly to be killed. So if she goes through with this, the best case scenario in her mind is dethronement, which would mean she returns to her regular, ordinary position in Persia as an exiled queen at best, losing everything that they had worked for. But of course, the worst case scenario is that she is killed, and that not only are her people killed, but so also there is no reward for her. And in some ways, Mordecai's confidence that she wouldn't escape is a little unfounded because he's the only one who knows that she's Jewish. So she could have probably gotten away with it, stayed safe in the palace. Now every other member of her ethnic group in the whole of the empire would be killed, but she would be safe. Her role as one in power as the queen of such an empire is under threat. And so the Jewish people and Esther and Mordecai and all of those in Esther's sphere of influence in the palace spend three days fasting and praying as Esther prepares to do the unthinkable. We see her approaching the throne room, walking through the outer courtyard, 
all grace and poise and humility. She's dressed in her most ornate royal robe, drenched in perfume, sparkling with every gem she has. And when she comes into sight of the king, maybe she's interrupting a meeting or some sort of royal business, but it doesn't seem to matter because when the king sees her, he is delighted. I cannot imagine the relief that she felt when he calls to her and extends his scepter before she even gets close. And he says, the text says immediately to her, what is it that you want? What is it that you need? Up to half of my kingdom, you can have it. And so she, having planned for this potential, maybe not thinking it would happen, asks that he and Haman, his most trusted advisor, come to a personal dinner in her chambers that day. And the king, of course, accepts with delight, maybe even turning to his neighbor and saying, can you believe what a great wife I've got? She's inviting me to dinner. What an awesome thing. So after they eat the meal that evening, she requests another meal the next day and says, I'll ask you then. I'll ask you then. This was too fun. I don't want to interrupt. We'll ask again tomorrow. So then we arrive in this larger story at our primary reading for today, which is from Esther chapter 5. And we're going to see a distinct piece of all of the circumstances surrounding Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people. So Esther chapter 5, 9 through 13. Haman went out that day, happy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was infuriated with Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Then he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all of the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and ministers of the king. Haman added, even Queen Esther let no one but myself Come with the king to the banquet that she prepared. Tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this does me no good so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So this is Haman leaving the first banquet with the king and the queen on this emotional high. But then he catches sight of Mordecai, probably still in his sackcloth and ashes, and it sours his mood. It's a bitter taste in his tongue. Because for Haman, this is personal. Mordecai's refusal to pay him honor meant that Haman was not satisfied by any success he was having in his life, his own ego, his own pride. For Haman, his attempt to kill all the Jewish people by the law and his success in getting it signed was not enough. His personal political success was not enough. His success in the wealth he had gathered, the number of sons he had fathered was not enough. His recognition by the queen, this personal invitation, none of it was enough. Haman wanted more, and that more was the death of the one who had not given them the honor he thought was his due. Only when Mordecai was dead would Haman ever be satisfied. 
And because of this, we see that Mordecai's very life is under threat. Right after the passage that we read, we get some bad advice from the wife and his friends who are gathered listening to his complaints. And they say, build something to kill him on. That'll help soothe your soul a little while you wait for the day of destruction to come. So the following day, the second banquet occurs. The king and Haman and Esther all gathered together and dining. Almost like a movie scene, Esther reveals her heritage and that she and all of her people are to be killed by an edict and that it is Haman who is to blame. She conveniently leaves out, of course, that it was the king's signet ring that signed the edict in the first place and instead focuses on the role that Haman plays in this deception. Haman begs for mercy, but there is none. And the king has him killed on the very instrument of death that he had built for Mordecai. Mordecai is then appointed to the same seat of power that Haman had occupied. But the trouble is not over yet for Mordecai and Esther. The edict that the king signed was still in place. And the date for that day of destruction was rapidly approaching them. And we find out in chapter 8 that the king grants Mordecai and Esther the power to make a law countering the existing one, but that because the original edict is signed by the king's seal, it can't be revoked. The only method to move forward is to write a counter law, allowing the Jewish people to be their own salvation. In this moment, we see that the Jewish people are are threatened by the structures of the land, the larger systems that they lived under. So they gather scribes from every language and people group in the empire, and Mordecai writes a new law, allowing the Jewish people to retaliate, to fight back on this day of destruction and destroy those who seek their death. And they gather the fastest horses in the kingdom and send the new letters out into each province. And the Hebrew people in every city and province on that terrible day succeed in overcoming their enemies. And a festival of celebration is held by the queen's orders. Esther's story last week reminded us that God is with us even when we are not our most righteous selves. And that story offered us an invitation, and that invitation was to reflect on our lives, even the parts that we wish to hide, and to seek God's presence there. And this week, we get a second invitation to look for God, but this time in our own threatening circumstances. In your life, sometimes a threat is personal. Your role might be threatened, like in your workplace with a new boss who disregards and disrespects your many years of service in your social groups, by a new person who ends up turning all of your friends against you. In your family, when the bad behavior of one family member that you call out ends up pushing you out instead. Your life itself might be threatened by those who tell lies about you to other people, by those who intentionally try to get you to react so that they can then play the victim by those who drag you into things that you have worked your whole life to avoid. In each of these situations, we are invited to look for where God may be, 
Because in sometimes in your life, a threat is communal. Your community might be threatened by infighting caused by fear and anxiety, which then turns outward to attack others by an unwillingness to presume the best about one another, by a lack of trust or a mindset of scarcity. Maybe you feel the communal threat of the structures of our world, like record profits for big businesses, but 30% layoffs the same week, like too high medical bills that get picked up by predatory collection agencies, like school lunch debt for actual children, like renting and mortgage systems that take advantage of those trying to get ahead. In these threats to our community, we can also look to where God may be. Sometimes the presence of God redeems our hardships. And sometimes God's presence is simply to not leave us alone in the darkness of our struggle. Regardless of the outcome, regardless of what it is that God does with our challenges, we have the opportunity to see God in each place, no matter our own actions and no matter our circumstances. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button, or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow Him.